0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. welcome back everyone we have been discussing 15 wine questions that are often asked of wine professionals this was an article that was published in christie's.com the famous auction house and this is part two of our conversation a topic that we want to move right into is what to do with a bottle that has a broken wine cork oh
1: i hate this kim hate (laughs) this it happens all the time to me
0: see what's excellent about this is that this explains why there are so many different styles of wine cork removers because there's there's a special wine cork remover that really, it's not a corkscrew per se, but is does a fabulous job of getting a broken cork out of a bottle.
1: Yeah. And I think my problem is I just go with the cheapest corkscrew I have no, and no. I always break it. And I'm like, why don't I just get a better corkscrew and spend the time? And I do know it, and it, it kills me.
0: Yeah. So you the type of corkscrew that you use actually can have an impact on what happens to your cork when you're opening it. So if you use the kind that you have a little, little knob that you twist on the top and then the wings come up, that can put a bit more of a hole into your cork as you're trying to open it. So if you have an older bottle of wine or a drier cork or a more delicate cork, you are more likely to have that cork disintegrate on you if you are using that style of a corkscrew. I almost always will use a waiter's corkscrew, which is what what you see waitstaff in a restaurant using, but it's a little bit harder to maneuver and it does take some practice. So a lot of people are, they're more comfortable with either a rabbit style or that winged style because it is easier to use and it doesn't take quite so much
1: Yeah, we've opened a ton of bottles of wine. And I think over the years you learn what's the best technique or what's the best mm-hmm. device to use. I, I, the key thing I found years ago was when you look at the corkscrew, the actual screw itself, if the tip of it is a closed screw, it's not... To me, it's not as good as one that has an opened end to it, because when you first put that tip of the screw into the cork, the open thing allows you to thread it in a lot better.
0: It all has to do with that threading, and especially if, you know, you've got a nice sharp point on it, that's going to do a better job as well.
1: Yeah, so the thread is just, I guess, I'm explaining that well, Kim, it's just open, it's not just one, it would almost look like a a standard screw. So
0: it's the difference between the corkscrew kind of making its way between the cells of the cork as opposed to carving. Just a hole through, yeah, through a, the middle of the cork. Yeah,
1: that's a good explanation. And then be, be a, I'm a gadget guy, so I guess I bought every electronic thing where you just put it on, it sucks it out, or whatever there is. I and I just don't have the I don't have the patience to charge it up or plug it in.
0: Do you have that one that like it pumps air or something into the bottle and then it has the cork sort of yeah, take it, itself out?
1: It just goes over the whole top of the bottle, encapsulates it and then pulls it up. Oh, is that what wow, okay. you're talking about?
0: No, I don't, uh, there's so many different things there's out so, there.
1: Yeah, and it's just the, I don't take the time, the and then I can't leave them on the counter, or my wife will kill me. So it's just I always just the to go-to the small, like you said, the waiters where it has a little wing on it that you can use as leverage on the bottle. But you do know you do need some practice with that, so you're not cracking the glass as you're pulling right, it out. Right,
0: right, and it doesn't obviously it doesn't take that much arm strength. I am not a very strong or large person, and I I can whip a cork out of a, almost any bottle using those. But it does take practice.
1: You've mentioned in the past the device. That have like the tongs that you put down between the cork. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? There's one corkscrew I can't think of the name of it, but it has the outside tongs that you can put around the outside of the cork, and in the middle it has the screw. So you start it with the screw, but then it guides it out with the tongs. On oh, the side. I've never seen that. It's like a $200 device. It's I don't know if it's oh. German or Swiss, but it's one of the most beautiful corkscrew and you can never not get the cork out in one piece because it's grabbing on the sides while it's pulling it from the center.
0: No, I've never seen that. I do keep handy one of those pronged corkscrews though, like you were just mentioning. And we just discussed this last week in how to get corks out of a larger format bottle. You use this same little device. It's got these two prongs and one is a little bit longer than the other. And you just slide them down on either side of the cork until you push it all the way in. Not the cork, but the the corkscrew. And then you twist it as you're pulling up. and And it generally, comes out and that really works for corks that are crumbly or are starting to fall apart because you're kind of grabbing onto it as opposed to needing the cork screw to go right through the center of the cork and then you can, you know, destroy it that way. So this has like almost like little fingers that you, you pull the cork
1: out. So what's your trick? You're, you're taking out the cork. It snaps. I mean, it's, this has happened to everybody. Mm-hmm. It snaps. You get uh, a quarter of it still deep in the bottle. What is your trick to listeners?
0: So I'll, I'll usually use either one of those pronged corkscrews or sometimes I will try a second try with my waiter's corkscrew if the cork hasn't fallen apart too badly I'll try to you know screw it in there again and then gently pull it up but worst case scenario just push the cork back in the bottle and you can pour it out just fine and if you have a little bit of corky particles in there either strain it through just like a mesh strainer or you know just try to get them out with a spoon it's not a little bit of cork isn't going to hurt you you don't really want it in your mouth you don't want to be chewing cork but there's nothing about a little bit of you know cork floating in your wine that's that's going going to hurt you or change the flavor of the wine. And I don't mind
1: when the cork breaks and it's nice and neat, but when you have an aged wine and that cork breaks and it's just a million tiny little mm-hmm. pieces of cork, oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> it gets everywhere and then it just keeps falling into the bottle. And like you said, you can you can drink it, but it's all about presentation and you just wanted to enjoy that wine. And then you're spending 30 minutes to get all this stuff out of it. Right. When they were talking about broken corks, it's it's annoying, but it does happen. Uh,
0: it's actually, this is a, a good segue to number two. Ten, which is about decanting older wine through a particular either a strainer or a type of material called muslin, which is sort of similar to cheesecloth, but it's a tighter weave and it's great for like a lot of cheesemakers will use it to to strain their cheese or if you're you know making ricotta at home or yogurt or something like that. So this is a really nice way if you do have that older bottle like you just said, Mark, where you've got like stuff from the cork or you've got a lot of sediment and a regular old kitchen strainer isn't doing it for you. There is this particular type of material that strains it out very nicely, but doesn't damage the wine itself.
1: Yeah, I've done this before where if I was doing something, an event, and I was using aged wine, the cork fell totally apart. And I just grab a little coffee filter, put it across a decanter. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time be- with that type of filter, because it just doesn't seep through as fast. Yeah. But have you ever used this other type of filter?
0: I have. So I actually have a lot of this material that I keep at home because I make a lot of of like pickles and sauerkraut and stuff like that. So sometimes I need to strain stuff out of it and I'll I'll use this material. Sometimes, I don't often have to do this with wine, but when I've done it with a coffee filter, it does take a whole lot longer than with this material, so. I've never seen this muslin filter. to yep. go to, go to Joann's it, fabric. Really? Yeah, it's not expensive. Does it say expensive. it's for wine? No, no, nope. it's just regular old material that you can find in um, in any fabric store. And the ones that I buy tend to be unbleached and it's made from cotton. And if you can find an organic one, I think a lot of people do recommend using an organic product if you are going to have it come in contact with food.
1: So they're unscented.
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's it's just the particular type of weave of the cotton cloth. Well, I'm going to have to look
1: that up because I've never used it. Go- now, does it when you Google in,
0: muslin cloth M U S
1: L I N. How about when you're pouring through it, is it porous where it goes through fast or is it It goes through fa- it goes yeah. through
0: faster than it would a coffee filter, but a little bit slower than if you were using a piece of cheesecloth.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, where your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please visit franklinliquors.com. We're continuing to talk about an article that was in christies.com. 15 questions wine experts are asked. The next question was, what temperature to serve wine at? And Kim, this is something we talk about all the time.
0: Generally, we find that people drink their white wines too cold and their red wines too warm. We always have this idea of reds should be served at room temperature, but that's room temperature in France 200 years ago. So it generally tends to be a little bit cooler than we tend to keep our homes. So don't serve your red wines at 70 degrees. You want to serve your reds closer to 65 or 60. And to get down to that level, you know, if it's a warm spring or summer day, just pop them in the fridge for 5 to 10 minutes and the The aromas will come out a little bit nicer and it will taste a little bit softer and you won't get as much of an alcoholic burn, especially on red wines.
1: I'm glad you explained the room temperature thing because room temperature is like 70 in my house all the time and I don't want my red wines at 70 degrees. Yeah,
0: you shouldn't be drinking any wine over 65 or 70 degrees just just because of the alcohol. It's going to taste a whole lot hotter when you have your wine a little bit warmer because alcohol evaporates at a higher temperature than, than other things do.
1: What about this 20-minute rule, Kim? You heard this explanation for wine temperatures. You you take the whites out of a fridge 20 minutes before you serve. You put the reds in 20 minutes before you serve.
0: 20 is a little much for me. I like the 10-minute rule a little bit better. See, I never heard the 10 minutes. (laughs) That's just how I do it at home. So 10 minutes for your reds in the fridge, but maybe I drink my whites just a little on the colder side. But that white wine is going to be sitting on my table for the hour or so over dinner that my husband and I are going to be drinking that bottle. So... I don't really have a problem with opening it right from the refrigerator and pouring myself that nice first glass of white wine.
1: And typically the normal household refrigerator is a lot lower temperature than a wine refrigerator would be. So that's why they would say, you know, take it out for a few minutes, let it open up a little bit. I always serve my whites. I pre-pour them and let them kind of open up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think if a white wine is too cold, it kind of kills the fruit and the aromatics. So I like it to be aromatic when you taste it. Right.
0: Yeah. I think you do you personally do drink your whites a little bit on the warmer side than I do and I think as we are trying to get people to understand and explore wines and taste new things and and understand what all the flavors and aromas and textures and things mean having them taste things a little bit warmer than they might ordinarily drink them is done on purpose because you are going to get a lot more flavor and aroma out of a slightly warmer wine and you're also going to notice when there's things wrong with it too so a way that sometimes if there is a problem with a white wine that can be hidden is by serving it too cold.
1: There's some white wines I, I like cooler, obviously sparkling as cold as possible, and anything acidic like a Sauvignon Blanc, if that gets too warm, then that acidity really shines more than the fruit. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. Certain ones I, I like to chill. a lot.
0: And I also think that if you are drinking them in a much warmer environment, so if you are sitting by the pool and it's 85 or 90 degrees out there, I would start off by serving the wine a little too cold because it is going to go up in temperature when it's sitting in your glass. The 12th most frequently asked wine question of wine experts is about food and wine pairings. And this is one that we definitely get quite often, especially in a situation where maybe we're serving wine and there's a little bit of a snack involved, if it's cheese or if it's fruit or small appetizer things, we often get the question of what wine goes with this food and then why.
1: And I think this topic is one of the ones we clash a lot on, Kim, is because we always think opposite of food pairings. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. And you're you're wrong most of the time, but (laughs)
0: we'll,
1: we'll get back to that. So when I always educate on food pairing, I just say the golden rule for me is light wines with light foods, heavy wines with heavy foods, and don't go by the thing white with fish, red with meat. That is totally gone nowadays.
0: See, with this one, we agree. For me, I think you do need to balance the weight of the food and the weight of the wine, which is what you were saying about light with light, heavy with heavy. But I add the extra level of think about... About your textures. It's not necessarily, for me, all about the flavor of the wine, but it has to do with those other elements in the wine. The acidity, the sweetness, the tannins. If you have a high tannic wine and a fatty food, those go really well together. Acid is a, a very big component in white wines as well as red wines. And that has to be taken into account when you are thinking about, oh, what's a good food match with this?
1: Yeah. So where we disagree a lot, as like Kim was saying, she would match the tannins or the acidity. So if I had a food Kim, that was spicy. This is, I think, the big difference we always fight in. I always try to play with that with a spicy wine, and you kind of. And go I go the opposite. Right? Yeah. I go
0: the opposite, and I, I always want to put something that's light in style and has a little bit of sweetness to it. So, with like a spicy dish, you have no problem going with like a big Syrah if it has sort of spice elements to it. And I would do the total opposite. I would do like, let's do an off dry Riesling that has a little bit of sweetness. So, it's not that I'm right in your are wrong or vice versa. We could taste both of those wines with that food and maybe they both work. We just have, I think, different philosophies as to what our go-to pairing for those kind of things would be.
1: What about the, the definite no-nos with food and wine pairing? What would you think is definitely you don't want to pair this with this food? I
0: think this is another one where we disagree a lot. So my big no-no is dry wines with sweet foods. And I know that you're okay with doing that sometimes.
1: Yeah, sometimes if the profile is... But I I semi-agree with that. I'll give you that one. Okay,
0: But then there are some certain foods that are more difficult to pair with wine. So one of the big ones for people is artichokes. And another one for me is a lot of different kinds of shellfish. Like I won't do shellfish with red wine because I think it brings out almost like a metallic sort of flavor in the fish. Those are a couple for me. Yeah, the
1: big one for me that sticks out all the time is dessert foods. If you have a wine that is not as sweet as that food. I think it's very overpowering.
0: Except for Girl Scout cookies.
1: Yeah, we, we did the Girl Scout cookie <laughs> thing. But you disagree with me on that too when we did it. But. I was
0: I was pleasantly surprised by the lemon Girl Scout cookies and the Sauvignon Blanc. That was a nice pairing that I was not expecting and, and even I can can learn to change my mind about things
1: like this. And you mentioned artichokes. I'm trying to think of what was some of the other foods that there's such a hard time. There was another vegetable, was it asparagus? There I think was, it's asparagus. That people always seem to have a hard time pairing things with Mm -hmm. but there's not many things that you you haven't seen out on the internet or heard about as far as trying to match food and wine with right i mean it's there's not many foods that we haven't heard about right
0: and, you know, there are some really stellar combinations. There are some really terrible combinations, but I think those are few and far between. And in the middle, there's this vast area of, yeah, this goes fine with this. Drink what you like with the food that you like that you, to eat and chances are it will go just fine. It's when you want to get to that next level of, I want to make a combination where the food and the wine together are better than the sum of its parts. And that's where putting a little bit more thought into your food and wine pairing comes in.
1: You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. where are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please visit her website at vinitas wineworks.com and if you'd like to get more information about myself please visit franklinliquors.com. we're continuing our talk on 15 questions wine experts are asked from christies.com and next is best time to visit a vineyard kim you've been to a lot of vineyards what's your take on this.
0: A vineyard definitely has its cycles and seasons and different things go on at different times. Don't visit a vineyard during harvest because there is just too much work going on and the folks at the winery don't want anything to do with you as a visitor. So, I would say between the end of August and the beginning of October is not necessarily the best time. And we're talking northern hemisphere here. If you're going to Australia or to Argentina, it's it's flipped. But don't show up when they are at their busiest. You want to go in in spring, Summer is a great time because all that really is going on in the vineyard itself during the summertime is that the grapes are just getting to their perfect ripeness. And there's not quite so much that the folks who are working in the vineyard are doing. And it's beautiful. So pick a time sometime between April and July or the beginning of August for a vineyard visit. And you'll, uh, you'll have a wonderful time.
1: Or well, you can show up at Harvest if you want to work if for wine. If you want to work, that's true. They will put you to work for some free wine. I'm trying to think of when else If you go to in, in the winter say And everything is just dead vines It's not very pretty So, But it is a good time to visit as far as tourists
0: And it's a great time for a winery tour too Because there is still a lot going on in all seasons there's always work to do in a winery and and you can get a lot of good information if you if you tour the winery because you can see how the wine is made and how it's aged and where it's stored and all that kind of stuff too so slightly different from a vineyard visit but a winery tour is also excellent
1: yeah now you, you just hit on something that kim i wanted to mention quick was vineyard tour versus a winery tour so if they're not growing any grapes and they just there's there's a lot of lately on the internet about companies that are in industrial parks you know, i mean there's a lot of people like that that are just making good wine but they don't have vineyards so there's nothing really to see grapes growing but right. so you can visit those any time of year and they'll be happy to see you
0: there's probably a tasting room maybe a place where you can buy some bottles and really it's you know it's, it's a really fun adventure if you've never seen that side of the business
1: yeah just to go in and see the whole wine making process seeing the tanks, seeing whatever things being fermented it's also very educational that way
0: Number 14 on frequently asked questions of wine experts is a topic near and dear to your heart, Mark. What's the most important thing on a wine label?
1: Yeah, we love talking about wine labels. I just like the fact that there are certain things that are regulated that we should know about and there are certain things that are tricks. So we always do the little tricks of of the label. First thing they talked about for most important is vintage, which is a representation of the growing season or the climate of that year.
0: I disagree with this answer. I don't think that vintage is the the most important thing especially since wine not only is wine technology and the science behind wine improved so much in the last couple of decades but there is a lot of wine out there that the everyday consumer is drinking that is a more consistent product from year to year either because it's grown someplace where vintage matters less like california or it's made in a way that there's so much of it made that there's a whole lot more blending going on and vintage just is i feel like less important to get to the final quality product that the customer wants to drink. Now, If you're talking about expensive Burgundy, if you're talking about the better Bordeaux, if you're talking about places like central France or like some places in Spain or Germany where the weather might be right on the cusp of a bad year, weather-wise gives us not such good wine, then yes, then you need to pay attention to those things. Germany really is one of the first ones that comes to mind because there are some years that still it's too cold, there's not enough sunshine to ripen the grapes and the wines just aren't as good in certain years years. But I don't think that the majority of consumers, that that is as much of a problem for them.
1: Yeah. And I agree. And we've talked about this a lot lately where all these countries are having bad weather issues and and bad production issues, but they're still rated good quality wines because they're still making good wine. So
0: So there might not be as much of it and there might've been problems with the vintage, but the wines that were made from those grapes that year, once they're in the bottle, they're very good quality.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things I learned a lot time ago and it was told by a winemaker is a good winemaker no matter what they're presented for grapes can still make a good wine and which leads us to what they said the second most important thing is the producer on the label.
0: And that's what I would say is the most important thing on the label so for me it's kind of a tie between the producer and then either the name of the wine or the grape variety that it's made out of depending on where the wine is from so if it's a European wine that tends to name their wines after the places then that is important and just as as important as if you're buying a new world wine something from california or australia or new zealand look at that grape variety because that's going to tell you an awful lot about the style of wine in the bottle do you think it's something
1: that's misunderstood as far as you see a producer say it's kendall jackson now do you think people know the winemaker or they just consider the brand it's a brand name
0: it's i think that there is a lot of gray area between producer region grape variety as quote-unquote the brand. So you could have a smaller producer that they might be making a wine that has a special name to it. Technically, yes, that's the brand, but the overall brand tends to be more either the name of the winery or it might have a person's name on it. Those things all play into this is the brand. So it's not, I don't think that there's a a real set answer for this one.
1: Sometimes I've noticed a lot on labels where they will have the winemaker's name. They're very proud to say this is the winemaker. And I guess I use that as a different level when I'm looking at the the wine label. But
0: then you have to be careful because is that really a real winemaker or are they just slapping somebody's name on there?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And if you just do a simple internet search, you'll you'll see what they pop up with. And like you said, sometimes there's second labels. Uh, a producer makes a second label and it's the same winemaker or it's that winemaker's protege or something that mm-hmm. makes that label. So there's a lot of things you can follow. Follow. And a lot of times that producer itself, there's so much more to dig into. It's it, You have to follow, I think, more than just the producer name or the vineyard name.
0: And it's hard, I think, to figure out, especially if you are either a casual wine drinker or a new wine drinker, to look at a label and understand exactly what it's trying to tell you. Because there's a lot of tricks and marketing things that go into what shows up on your bottle of wine. And there's a lot of different places that a wine can come from. There are so many different grapefruits varieties out there there's just a lot that you have to know in order to make an informed decision and if you don't know that information it you might have a harder time choosing a wine so that's why it's it's also good to have trusted people that you can ask your questions of like mark and like myself that we can give you hopefully some simple answers to maybe your complicated questions I
1: thought it was funny that the most important things they only had two right yeah, i mean there's so there's many, many so more much.
0: important things to know You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us online at vinitaswineworks.com and franklinliquors.com. And finally... Topic number 15 in this article from Christie's was what wines should we be drinking now? And wine still is a little bit of a seasonal product. So as we are in warmer weather, what do we drink now? We drink a lot of rosé. But I'm not sure that's exactly what this question was asking. I think it's more like what is in the rotation of should we be drinking your older wines versus your not older wines. But I don't really think that that's where a lot of people are at. And I think that the questions that the Christie's people are getting are from more seasoned wine drinkers kind of higher price tier wines. So there are a lot of wines out there that maybe they're from older vintages that are drinking best in twenty eighteen. But for me, there's a lot of more wine out there that is freely available in the market in the current vintage that is drinking deliciously right now.
1: Yeah, they were saying what should we drink everyday wines? But the Christie's consumer or customer is probably not your or my everyday. Yeah, I think wine they're going drinking.
0: into their wine cellar and saying, the two thousand five Bordeaux are drinking fabulously right now. I have some of those in my cellar, but that's not where my mindset is. And I don't think that that's where our customers and our clients are because that's it's not we're not talking about the the top 2% of wine drinkers here. That's that's not my market of people that I'm talking to. And it's probably not a whole lot of you. So um, we recommend generally that I mean, for my price point tends to be under $25 a bottle. I don't know what you tend to drink on an everyday basis, Mark.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do not Not many people can afford a $30, 40 bottle every day. So, But I like how you said earlier about how it's based on the season. But I've noticed lately that like rosés have become a year round. And I love that people are venturing out and exploring things all year long.
0: I like that too. And I feel like you can drink a rosé in any situation where you would be drinking a white wine. They go with a lot of the same foods, they're refreshing. So don't just reserve them for summer weather, hotter weather. Drink one in February. It'll make you feel better.
1: I think the big difference, you know, it's a hot day and I'm not going with a big heavy red. I think that trend is never going away. People Mm -hmm. will go with the weights maybe based on temperature. But like in this article, they mentioned Rhone, France. They mentioned Napa. They mentioned Italy. And I think a Rhone wine is probably not, I mean, most of those are priced over 20. But there are some under $20 Rhones that are good everyday wines, but not very popular for the average consumer.
0: Right. And there are a lot of other things that are off people's radar, but are still really delicious wines. You know. Things from Sicily, things from Portugal, things from Spain, um, the Loire Valley in France, which produces some of my favorite white wines in the whole wide world. You know, there's a lot of wine out there that is not California Cabernet, California Chardonnay, Italian Pinot Grigio. There's so much out there to explore. And if you either choose a region that you've had success with or a grape variety or even a price point, say $15 bottles, if that is comfortable for you and you want to explore other things that you can find that all cost $15, I think that's also a really fun way of learning some new things about wine.
1: What would you say, Kim, is for our listeners, what do you think the percentage of everyday wines for our listeners is American or California wine?
0: I think a lot of people still will drink a lot of California wine or a lot of, say, Oregon wines if they want to have the Pinot Grigio. I think because the labeling is a little bit clearer for people and it does specify what the grape variety is. Obviously, it's all in English. Most of our listeners are English speakers. That will be helpful. If you're looking at a bottle of German wine, the juice in that bottle might be absolutely delicious to you. But if you can't understand what that label is telling you, you aren't going to buy it. So I don't think that we can overlook the ease with which you can understand what a bottle of wine is telling you.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking. And I, I'm hoping by us talking to you every day, it gets people to explore that $10 of Italian Chianti or that $5 bottle of Portuguese red that are just great values and good. To me, it's the actual definition of an everyday wine because in these countries, that is there every day. And in some cases, like Italy, maybe every hour, wine.
0: <laughs> but- every meal yeah
1: just great everyday stuff and it's not california juice maybe at most times less cost but uh, by us talking more and more about it hopefully we can pass that on so we would
0: encourage you to do a little bit of research on an area that maybe that you're curious about or areas of the world that produce wine that we've touched on if it sounds like a style that you might like do just a little bit of research and then the next time you're in the wine shop search out a wine from that area in whatever price range is comfortable for you and try some new things
1: Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more information about us, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Thank you.